Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton Forward by Boy Browning It is entirely fitting that this book, The Story of the Glider Pilot Regiment, should be written by the man who created and commanded the regiment during the last war. It tells of the birth pangs and later the achievements of a unit which consisted of soldiers trained to fly by the Royal Air Force who were destined to pilot their comrades of the army into battle and then to join them in the fighting on the ground. This dual role required the highest standard in the individual – the ability to work with and thoroughly understand the technique, training and language of two services and to be acceptable and integrated with both. The fact that the raising and training of the regiment was achieved in so short a time was largely due to the imagination, the foresight and the inter-service knowledge of the commanding officer. The author, Brigadier George Chatterton, had the advantage, which he sets out in the early chapters, of being trained as a naval cadet at Pangbourne then to become a fighter pilot of great ability, and finally to gain experience in the army when commanding a company in an old and distinguished regiment of the line. Because of this background, he was ideally suited to undertake the task of creating a regiment which was to play a vital part in the organisation of Britain's first airborne forces. To anyone like myself, intimately concerned with the creative period and its fulfilment, the story is of absorbing interest, But the same should hold good for all those readers, and there will be many, who read this history of the Glider Pilot Regiment, and so come to learn of its early days of frustration owing to lack of aircraft, the difficulties it overcame, and the formidable success achieved. Seldom has any unit of any arm or service attained such a peak of efficiency and made such a name for itself as the Glider Pilot Regiment in its all-too-short life. It is good to know that the standards of the regiment and its esprit de corps will be carried on by the Army Air Corps and its traditions perpetuated in the flying arm of the Army of today. F.A.M. Browning, May 1962. Author's Note During the year 1941, the German Army committed their airborne forces, including a small glider force, to the assault on the island of Crete. After this, the German airborne army was never used in strength again, owing to the huge casualties it sustained. A little later in that year, two British Horsa gliders were towed over Norway to attack the German atomic plant there. The glider pilots and the military load were never seen or heard of again. Hardly a promising baptism for British airborne forces. In 1942, however, the Glider Pilot Regiment was established by the War Office, perhaps the most unique military organisation conceived. The personnel were all qualified pilots, yet fully organised, trained and equipped to fight in all and every capacity on the ground. This is the story of the Glider Pilot Regiment. It contains my own adventures in building it up and leading it, based on my own diary and notes and accounts contributed by a number of individuals who took part. Chapter 1. The Royal Air Force and the Army, 1930-1939 There were four of us in the railway carriage, Zulu Morris, a South African, Tubby Mermigan, myself and one other whose name I have now forgotten. We sat in the four corners of the carriage, looking out of the windows and surveying the flat drabness of the scene outside. We were on our way to a school to learn the first rudiments of flying. 
There were 40 of us on the train, all between the ages of 19 and 25, some of us still green from school, some of us sporting our senior years of 23 or 4, with the solemn air of knowing the lot, particularly about women. In our suitcases and trunks were our brand new uniforms, tunics, trousers, breeches, putties, white shirts with stiff and soft collars, service caps, and above all, our mess kits comprising monkey jackets and overalls, with short Wellington boots, stiff shirts and collars. Secretly, we could scarcely wait to wear them. The train began to slow down, and Tubby Mermigan, glancing at his watch, said, This is it, we've arrived. An officer in uniform greeted us on the platform, Sleaford, I think it was, and ushered us into three lorries. I remember that well, for they were cold and uncomfortable, and the only view was from the back, but at last we arrived at the hutted camp, and as we jumped down we saw in the fading gloom the dark shapes of hangars, within which stood the aircraft we hoped to fly on the morrow. Next morning was bitterly cold as we taxied out to take off, and in the aircraft I sat tense with excitement, never taking my eyes off the back of the instructor's head. He seemed to me to be a god, and the machine a leviathan. And what a machine! The Avro 504. Today it is almost impossible to think that this aircraft was ever meant to fly. A biplane, a leftover from the 1914-18 war, was still the basic training aircraft of the Royal Air Force in 1930. It was all wires wood and fabric, and sported a radial engine, yet no aviator could have been more excited than I. I don't believe excitement ever changes in a man, it is only conditions that change. The pilot turned into the wind, looked left and right and opened up. With a hollow bumping and the noise of the engine revving up, we sped across the grass, lifted once, and then rose into the air. I was flying. No moment of my life has or will ever be the same as it was at that moment, except perhaps when I eventually flew solo. In the year that we were there, 1930, the school taught us to live. The flying was everything, but with it went mess life and all that it entailed. It was one of the customs to encourage comradeship for the senior course to try to throw the junior course out of the anteroom. It was a battle royal watched by the instructors, and I do not think anything brought us more together than that first night brawl. We lived on four pounds, five shillings a week, which saw us through everything, including our mess bill which was never less than £2.10 shillings a week, leaving us 35 shillings to play with. And play we did. Of course, everything revolved around the flying. We did six months on the Avro, then six months on service types, as they were then known. It is incredible to think that as late as 1930, these service types were still to be seen. Such aircraft as the Bristol Fighter, used in 1917, 13 years before, and the twins Vinnie and Virginia, also antiques. Yet nothing will compare with those wonderful old aeroplanes, rolling and bumping their way across the airfields. The beauty of them to us was unsurpassable, and I remember one of my friends, Ned Harmon, saying, You know, George, when I first flew solo in a Bristol fighter, I was so overjoyed and thrilled that I felt that I should be paying the Air Force for the privilege of flying, rather than that they should be paying me. And that put the views of all of us in a nutshell. Quite a few killed themselves, and their belongings were auctioned in the billiards room. We were quite callous about it. I remember one brilliant pupil who crashed and was killed. He had gone solo in six and a half hours, a unique effort, and promised a brilliant future. But he succumbed to the overconfidence that is never far away from the flyer. Perhaps one day when he was feeling over-exhilarated, he started to dive an aerobat, showing off to people on the ground, until eventually the machine flew too low, hit the ground and burst into flames. I mention this because there was an unwritten warning in the Air Force that there were three danger points in flying. The first 25 hours, 
the first 100 hours, and finally the first 500 hours. Each of these was recognised as a danger point at which a man could kill himself through overconfidence and the belief that he knew all the answers. In fact, all the answers can never be found in flying. All that I learned at the flying school was to stand me in good stead some 13 years later in an entirely different environment. At Digby I was taught to fly in a fashion second to none. I was taught the discipline required, the importance of always keeping my eyes open, particularly around the airfield, and I was taught personal discipline, for we were paraded every day with rifle and bayonet and were drilled ruthlessly. Even though I was taught to fly on an outmoded aircraft, I maintained that I and my friends had to fly all the better because of it, for we had few instruments, no radio or contact with the ground, and so learned to be entirely reliant on eye, brain and quickness of thought. As I emerged from that year, I had, in my 200 hours flying, flown all the old, dead and finished aircraft, and I count myself lucky, for I had behind me all the experience of my predecessors. I knew exactly what they had gone through in defeating the German Air Force in 1914-18. I also emerged with my wings. I emerged a man, disciplined on the ground and in the air, and strangely enough, completely trained for the role I was to take over in 1943, for the air training required one to land with the throttle back and to glide in, and he who opened up was laughed at, for he had rumbled, always a source of embarrassment. Looking back, the training I received had been tailor-made for my future, though neither I nor those who trained me could have appreciated this. From the elementary school of flying, I was sent to the central flying school to be trained on fighter aircraft. This was at the time the mecca of flying, for here the instructors were taught to instruct, and the finest aviators in the world were on the staff. How well I remember Tubby Mermigan and I arriving at Wittering and our intense excitement. I can still taste the superb food in the mess, the complete sense of relaxation and the almost astounding nonchalance of the staff and the pupil instructors. The commandant of the Central Flying School at that time was the great Mary Cunningham, who made such a name for himself later in the Second World War. At Wittering, perhaps the most remarkable part of the day was between 1pm and 2pm, when the Air Ministry waived all rules and limits. In that hour, I saw breathtaking aerobatics that I shall never see again. Aircraft inverted, upside-down flying, dives which knocked the petals off the rose trees in front of the mess, slow rolls terminating at heights less than 50 feet from the ground, all exhilarating and exciting. The weeks I spent there have left an indelible impression on my mind. Even the local pubs such as the Haycock, just outside Stamford, still spell romance to me, especially the frolics with the girls in the pubs. And so we passed from training to squadron life. Tubby and I were both posted to RAF Tangmere, Tubby to number 43 squadron and I to number 1 squadron. Side by side, there we were, still fast friends. I was to live in the mess at RAF Tangmere for some years and it was here that all I had learnt about flying was to be developed. The two squadrons consisted of four flights of four aircraft with an establishment of some 15 pilots in each squadron. For most of the time I was there, we were equipped with single-seater Hawker Furies, superb aircraft. We were classified as interceptors, and each week the battle flights were permanently at the ready, fueled and armed, and patrolled the south coast at 30,000 feet. There were three RAF squadrons equipped with Hawker Furies, and a fierce rivalry raged between them. They were number 43, number 25, and number 1 in which I served. Number 25 was stationed at RAF Hawkinge in Kent. In all aspects of life, this rivalry was apparent. Although we were outwardly friendly, inwardly the antagonism never left us, which, of course, encouraged intense competition and raised the standard of flying to great heights. 
I remember a memorable occasion when I was a flight commander. I was selected to represent my squadron in the RAF Champion Battle Flight Competition, which entailed a number of operations such as camera gun shooting or intercepted aircraft, rapid rearming of guns and refuelling. It also included turnout of men, machines, tools and armament. Each squadron was represented by a flight and the three squadrons were running neck and neck, everything depending on the tools inspection. My flight gained success and the Championship Cup, mainly because the flight sergeant had sat up all night polishing the tips of every tool in the equipment. At about this time, another incident created fierce rivalry. It was during the waiting period while squadrons were being allotted the parts they were to play in the RAF display at Hendon. Number 25 Squadron had made a great name for itself the year before when they were equipped with Armstrong Siskins, a cumbersome fighter, by performing a squadron loop, that is, the three flights looped in squadron formation. We were all wondering if this same exhibition would win them the laurels in the forthcoming display. One beautiful day, when we were lounging outside the mess at about 12.30pm, there was a sound of aircraft overhead, and as always, our heads turned skywards. My God, look at this! It's a flight from 25 Squadron, cried an indignant voice. As we gazed into the clear blue sky, three silver furies, with the markings of 25 Squadron on them, approached in a slight dive, and then, to our amazement, lifted their noses slightly, went up and rolled right over, an aerobatic we had never seen before. We stood transfixed as they repeated the performance, and then, looping twice, turned and sped off home in the most impertinent fashion. There was a continual buzz of indignation at lunch, and that afternoon the sky was filled with aircraft in flights of three attempting the aerobatics they had seen performed by 25 Squadron. I was becoming an expert in this type of flying, and I cannot forget those early attempts, for we were far too proud to go over to Hawkinge to find out how to do it. The laugh was finally on 25 Squadron, for they were left out of Hendon that year, and we were chosen to represent the aerobatics. The pièce de résistance was the flight role which they had invented. How they must have cursed the three show-offs who had come over to see us at lunchtime that day. I was selected to do the individual aerobatics, performed in unison with another pilot, Sergeant Roth, but later I was given a much more exciting job to visit Canada and tour the major cities there in flying demonstrations. This flight consisted of four pilots and was under the charge of Wing Commander George Pirry, who later became an Air Chief Marshal. We went out by boat with our aircraft in crates, landed at Montreal, where we were stationed at St Hubert Airport, and where our Hawker Furies were put together before we started our tour of Canada. Flying in 1934 was in the doldrums, as Canada had been severely hit by the 1929 slump. At St Hubert, there was an old station mast of the ill-fated airship R101, and the airfield hangars and offices were in tatters, grass growing from the roofs and rust everywhere. We lived under canvas and really had the most delightful stay. Of course, we were a great draw to the Canadians, whose heart and spirit in aviation had been laid low. In those days, the USA had few aircraft to compare with ours, and we had the fastest level flight aircraft in the world. We could fly to 32,000 feet in eight minutes and cruise at over 200 miles per hour, which in 1934 was no mean feat. By now, the four of us had become completely expert in formation and individual aerobatics, and there was little that we could not do either in a flight or singly. We looped, rolled, rolled off the top, that is a half loop, and then a roll off the top, never attempted before. We dived, line astern, then the leader lifted up in a great climb. The two behind climbed higher on either side of him, and all three completed the loop in line abreast. 
Perhaps one of the most exciting experiences of all this tour was demonstrating with Flying Officer Willie Donaldson an exhibition of individual aerobatics. This was performed in front of a huge audience at Quebec. The scene was set in front of the famous Heights of Abraham, some 300 feet above the St Lawrence. We dived right down into the valley and demonstrated our rolls and loops on the level of the audience, probably a unique bit of flying. And, as Willie said afterwards, I bet that shook them rigid, which I'm quite sure it did. It was all a wonderful experience that contributed towards building up progress and efficiency as a pilot. For some six months we rolled and looped round Canada and then returned home to continue our duties as interceptors of the Royal Air Force. It was about this time that my destiny was redirected. It came about through the culmination of a series of accidents. One morning my flight commander and I decided to make a practice interception. This entailed climbing to some 30,000 feet, seeking a single aircraft and attacking it. I remember climbing into the cloudless sky and watching the target aircraft, which had flown up with us, break away at 25,000 feet. We were then over Guildford. We reached our decided height and began looking for the target aircraft, but although we searched endlessly we could not find him and decided to return to base. Some time later we heard the sound of an aircraft and there was our target machine making a circuit of the airfield. Landing, he walked over to us, I remember his name was Sergeant Rag, and said, At what height and at what place and time did I leave you, sir? I answered, At 0945 hours at 25,000 feet over Guildford. His face was pale, and with an anxious air he said, Well, all I can tell you is that I blacked out and came to over Littlehampton at 5,000 feet, and that was 10.20 hours by my watch. We looked at him incredulously, walked over to his machine and examined the oxygen equipment. There seemed to be nothing wrong with it, though we examined and tested it carefully. Later that day, another pilot took up Rag's machine. Sometime afterwards, we heard the ominous scream of an engine in a power dive, and in the distance saw him diving straight for the earth. It was all over in a second. There was a great crash and a cloud of black smoke, and then nothing. When the retrieving squadron eventually arrived at the aircraft, its nose was 20 feet in the ground, and the pilot, well, he had just disintegrated. It was finally decided that probably a washer had become loose and that his oxygen had leaked just enough for him to become unconscious, as Rag had done, but unluckily for him the aircraft had dived straight to earth. As a result of this accident, I had to make a test to see just how far one could go before becoming unconscious. I climbed to 22,000 feet before I realised that I was being affected and then trimmed the aircraft so that it would fly itself. I then proceeded to lose my full senses and dived the aircraft until I regained them. I found it was like being very drunk, a feeling I had experienced once or twice in the mess 22,000 feet below. At least we were pioneering, and something was learnt from this experience. It was a few days later that the accident which was to affect the whole of my life occurred. It was on a morning when the sky was filled with great white clouds, and we took off as a flight of three to practice aerobatics and general flying. It was an intoxicating day for flying. And I can remember, as we climbed up thousands and thousands of feet, the clouds, superlative and spotless, towering above us as the sun shone from a blue sky beyond them. We flew in and out of the clouds for some time, until the leader gave us the signal to fly line astern. This we did, each step down one below the other. My place as second in command was beneath the ladder, and young Anderson, a pilot officer behind me. We flew on, and eventually we were led into a great cloud. I lost position and as I could not see the leader I broke away and climbed up over the clouds. From there I spotted Anderson, 
who was streaking after the leader and I joined in, taking the last place, rather reluctantly, I remember. Then we proceeded to fly on, the leader quite unaware of the goings-on behind him. Climbing again, we were confronted by a huge black cloud, and as we approached this, Anderson broke away to the left and I to the right. I climbed again and noticed that my height was about 8,000 feet. Then beneath me, at something like 5,000 feet, I saw the leader. I could not see Anderson anywhere, so I decided to dive down and take up formation in my original position behind the leader. I remember the airspeed mounting as I descended, 200, 220, 250, 280, 300 miles per hour, and was drawing closer, trying to catch up. Suddenly, there was a loud twang, a rending of fabric, and I received a sickening blow on the head. Anderson and I had collided. I can remember little, except that it seemed the earth was where the sky ought to be, and vice versa. I crossed my arms and released my straps, but at first I was unable to get out. Only by kicking and struggling did I eventually succeed in falling out of the cockpit and into the air below, my parachute opening and leaving me dangling in the harness. Looking down, I could see that it was over Lansing College with the River Arran and the sea far away to the left. What I could also see was some high tension wires towards which I seemed to be drifting. Panicking, I pulled at the parachute strings, but I only seemed to sideslip nearer to the wires, so I snatched at the other side and swung away. Now I was swinging just as a child might on his garden swing. Slowly I descended to earth, but at the last moment my parachute swung in the air and collapsed and I hit the ground and lost consciousness. When I came to, I had the most agonising headache and a pain in my back, but I managed to get up and walk up the side of the downs. Climbing the steep chalk path, I found the two crashed aircraft deep in the ground. Alas, Anderson hadn't managed to get out and was killed instantly. Indeed, I was very lucky to be there at all, for I was told that we had been locked together for thousands of feet and only at a lower height had the aircraft parted and enabled me to fling myself out to safety. This accident had a most depressing effect on me, for at the inquiry, one of the examining officers suggested that it might have been my flying back into position that had caused Anderson to make a mistake. I was completely exonerated of this, but the doubt had its effect on me, and I became haunted by the possibility that I should have waited. My headaches increased, and I became prey to insomnia. Although I was x-rayed, nothing showed on the plates, so I continued to fly. One evening, I went out for a jaunt with some friends and we drank rather a large quantity of beer. Without warning, I became like a man possessed with a sense of revulsion for everything and everybody. The next thing I remember was standing on the wall of Littlehampton Harbour with an intense desire to jump into the darkness and the waiting sea below. But at the moment when the urge became unbearable, I was heaved backwards and I can still hear a voice shouting, What the hell do you think you're trying to do? The next day, I was stopped flying ordered to see the medical officer and informed that I should be required to have a medical examination. This I did, and I was ordered to the RAF Hospital Uxbridge with what was termed delayed concussion. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.